The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This season is brought to you by The Threshold Community, a new online collaboration between me and my dear friend, Holly Trular. We're gathering with like-minded, collapseware people to tend the threshold of the twilight times of the world as we've known it. Together, we're exploring collapse preparedness, attachment and trauma and co-regulation, animism and eco-psychology, grief and death and ritual, transformative justice, creativity, and play. Read all about it at thethresholdcommunity.com and find us on Instagram at Tending the Threshold. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast is the continuation of my conversation with Mara Kerr, a high tanner, hunter, wildcrafter, herbalist, and wilderpunk extraordinaire. In this episode, Mara talks about the history of high tanning and the important role that women and femmes played in this vocation. And we also circle back to the question I posed in the last episode of her about how she approaches redress with Indigenous communities as she returns the teachings of high tanning that were eradicated by colonialism. So Mara, what identities do you lead with? Um, The first identity I lead with is that I'm an orphan. I've been an orphan since I was a young toddler. Um, I also identify as a settler on Turtle Island and I'm a femme. So I would like to know about um, your business, your, not only the skill of being a high tanner, but also how, like, tell us how you've built out a business around that. What do you do exactly? <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because not too long ago, it wouldn't be considered strange for high tanning to be a vocation, but it is something that the impact of globalization has just like dislodged this millennia old vocational tradition from our collective consciousness living on this continent in this moment. Um, So I didn't even create this vocation on purpose, really. This was a skill that I came to when I was learning how to hunt. And it called to me so deeply that I just could not stop in my learning quest. And I traveled to find teachers near and far. And I did so much experimentation because there's really little known about natural high tanning in sources that I could find. So I started teaching others first because I'm very drawn to teaching. It's in my astrology birth chart. I've got a lot of like teaching planets and stuff going on. It's not even something that I intentionally do. But as soon as I started learning how to tan hides, I wanted to show people how to tan hides. Also just because it's so amazing. But then it moved into something that became more of a livelihood when I was asked to teach in remote communities. And to do that meant I had to get my equipment together. It all had to be mobile so I could carry it in my tiny truck and um, to really start scaling it up because to teach 10 people at one time is the equipment equivalent of tanning 10 hides at one time. And that is a, a large operation. And so about four years ago was when I started 
teaching. And I would teach a class here and there in backwoods communities and eventually had the idea that maybe I could put it out there to the world and offer a public workshop on high tanning and see who showed up. Amazing. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about what the historic vocation, at least, you know, you and I share some Scottish Gaelic background ancestry and one of the wonderful things you do in your tanning uh, workshops, at least with the sheepskin is like, have everybody research what is the tanning tradition of your ancestry how was this done um and you've said in different parts of your website even that you're kind of like a um traveling tanner (laughs) you know and and i'm just curious if you could share a little bit about what some of the historic uh context of tanning was at least in the tradition that you know best Mm -hmm. yeah i would say the traditions that i know best are the Scottish and Nordic traditions, partly because they are the traditions that have survived through the Industrial Revolution. And so there are still people in those traditions who can harken back centuries in the same way that they practice it. Um, And high tanning is one of the community skills that is so integral to a land-based community but is so vulnerable when forces such as colonization or invasion hit at a community because it takes a lot of moving parts and it takes an intact community to have it all come together. You need to have folks who are hunting. You need to have folks who are staying on the home front. You need to have folks who like have the time and you need to be able to do it while everything else is also going on because you need to have the fat and have the smoke. And there's just a lot of ingredients that are very easy to have at hand when all of those moving parts are in flow. So when something like an external force or empire comes around, it's just so easy for high tanning to get displaced from a people. And we've really like seen that the world over. Um, So the way that it seemed to go historically in Europe is that smoke tanning, which is also called brain tanning and makes this beautiful textile of buckskin, it was retained on the home level in places that just didn't get overly commodified and didn't fall into feudalism as much as more central population places did. So the fringes of islands, the north part of Europe, places where people still kept their intact, their community structures intact, that was where high tanning really survived. Another type of high tanning, which is the one we think of in this day and age, which is making leather, that is an industrial process that got Uh, sort of usurped by urbanization and went from a community level into a societal vocation. And that's also when high tanning was sort of taken away from women and femmes and the people who tended to be on the home front. And it became a livelihood only available to men. And it also became eventually a very toxic one. And that's like how we know of commercial high tanning today is that it's environmentally degrading. It's toxic to the employees in the factories. And it's also just incredibly toxic as a product down the line in terms of off-gassing. And so that's an interesting point that you bring up. Um, 
I think it was in the context of Lata, Lata Ram uh, mm-hmm. was talking about, I have her book right here. <laughs> what was her last name again? Uh, talking about um, fish skin leather and kind of, you know, just how integrated this was in like kitchen work for women and femmes. Can you, can you kind of lift that up a little bit more about the role of women and femmes in hide tanning and, um, and maybe even talk a little bit about fish skin leather, which maybe some people didn't even know is a thing. Totally. Yeah. There's so many pieces to the historical household that we just like, we can't imagine them anymore. And part of the reason that they don't get written down is that it was so common sense for folks. Lata lives in Sweden and she talks about how you don't really have a separate place in your home for fish skin tanning. It's something that happens simultaneous to cooking. You might have like a jar that you set aside and you put the fish skin in the jar and like you continue to cut the filet and like boil the potatoes and you just move on with your life and you integrate it into everything that you're doing in the home. It's not something that's like distinct to the rest of your life. It's, I, I found that so affirming when we were doing um, sheepskin tanning in, in one of your workshops, just like, oh, yes, women and femmes doing this work, like, because you do have to be tracking this hide, you know, at certain times, right? You're like, really, you're, you're stretching, you're oiling, you're moving. And so you have to be kind of in and around it. It has to be part of the domestic sphere, right? You can't just like stop everything. So it just, if there was a biological rightness in my bones that, yeah, you would have like kids over here and you'd be making that and you'd be, you know, mending over there and you'd be checking your hide (laughs) as you were stretching it out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a really strong connection between hide tanning and midwifery. These are two magical transformational moments of life and death that happen that in you know many cultures the world over, women and femmes are the stewards of life and death in this way. And so of course they're the stewards of hides, they're the stewards of babies, mm-hmm. and often undertakers as well. And I think that that connection makes so much sense to me because when you are living in a land-based culture and you are witnessing the death of the animals that you eat, including farming cultures, not even necessarily hunting-based ones, but almost especially if the animals that you're eating are ones that you've cared for and probably nursed and raised, when that animal moves from life into death and then you come in with this practice of high tanning, which is reviving so many things about the animal, a lot of the skills are the skills of a midwife and a doula. That's an amazing connection. So I'm curious then, I I was going to ask you this in the last episode and said I'd circle back and then I, you know, I went off just enchanted by something else you had said and forgot to come back. But but this is something very, uh, I think, integral and important about how you in particular are are um, managing your business and your trade, your vocation as a high tanner. So can you talk a bit more about how, talk about your manner of approach, carrying multiple identities as settler who also 
you know, has a bit of indigenous ancestry through Anglo Metis kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, coalescing. And so how do you carry those multiple identities when you are working with indigenous uh, communities, as you do, bringing back the ancestral skill of high tanning, the knowledge of which was stolen from them and destroyed through colonization? Mm. Yeah, I'll start by first noting that high tanning in this more northern latitude of Turtle Island is one of the first ways that settlers and or I should say colonizers and indigenous peoples interacted with each other which is through the fur trade and for the first you know 250 of the 300 year fur trade relationships were not always in an oppressive way indigenous peoples were massively autonomous and had agency over the economic reality of the fur trade. It's kind of a myth now for us to look back on the fur trade and think that it started off immediately as being an oppressive force. What really happened is that there came to be a monopoly and there came to be a lack of separation between corporate control and government and also a ton of white people in the east decided that they were just going to call the rest of this continent Canada and then they moved westward. And there was a lot of resistance to that as well, armed resistance. So high tanning is steeped in this incredibly rich history and it also is one of the skills that every human around the world has in their own ancestry and is something that is just so integral to humanity because no matter where you live, you need to clothe yourself, you need to house yourself. And so hunting or raising animals and tanning their hides is a natural part of being human anywhere. So high tanning has a real potential to be a cultural bridge builder. It also has, um, you know, there's a lot of I'm going to say like mistakes or or pitfalls that one can fall into, especially white folks who are looking to get into their own ancestral healing work and want to take up skills from their own lineage. It's really important to look to our own lineages and find what we have permission to use. So like when I'm teaching folks, I don't teach people Cree high tanning. You know, you can go on YouTube and see the most amazing Cree matriarchs teaching the world Cree high tanning. I teach people what is ultimately Scottish high tanning, and the end product looks the same, but the methodology is just like so embedded in cultural practice. And that is where cultures really, you know, present themselves to the world and like create their own aesthetics. Yeah, and I would say, you know, to, to more directly answer your question on what it means to me to have this as an occupation is that it's a chance for me to center my life around redress, around reparations. Um, there was a time when I think a lot of us were hopeful that this word reconciliation that was being used by the Canadian government would have a deeper meaning to it because truly the word reconciliation or to reconcile means that like one party admits that they have done a wrong and provides redress to the other. And 
especially in 2020, we have seen that the Canadian government is not interested in taking the steps that are necessary to provide reconciliation. And so I truly do believe that it is the responsibility of settlers to see how we can take steps in our own life to provide reparations to people and to like help folks who just went through a genocide who we are living with in community. And the way that I can do that is using this skill that I have and yeah, and I'm always learning and I'm always making mistakes in it too. Um, it is really tricky to use the system of commerce to try to have a social impact. There's a lot of baggage there. Uh, because I have seen through like studying history how well it can go, I do believe now more than ever in people acting on the community level and using commerce more than I believe in like the nonprofit system or in like governments <laughs> deciding that they're going to create systemic change. I think systemic change has to kind of happen from the ground up and I want to be a part of that. Can you talk a bit about what you mean or examples or what's inspiring you around um, commerce uh, being able to be a form of redress? Like in the context of your business, how are you doing that? Uh, the way that I strive to do that in my business is basically like I teach people how to tan hides and if they want to teach people how to tan hides, I'll teach them how to teach people. <laughs> That's really, I think, it as its most basic is like this is a valuable skill that is valuable not just to us personally, but also to us like as communities and the more people who know this skill, the better for just so many reasons. And so um, I aim to make this teaching accessible financially. Um, I aim to set up high tanning in places where people can just come and do it and learn themselves. Um, sometimes that takes the form of a temporary high tanning camp that's like on a drop-in basis or sometimes that is a project that recently came to a close, which was like a maker space where people could come and tan their own hides. Um, I'm doing this at the same time of, you know, operating in like a landless context where high tanning is the thing earlier, a skill that is just so tied to all of those moving parts of a community being intact. And so I'm also, you know, operating in an experimental context of being able to provide education without it being tied to one specific geographic region, which is also so fascinating. So well, tell us a bit about Limina then, because that seems kind of like this frontier now, <laughs> you know, mm. like talk about being landless. You're like taking um, high tanning and different ancestral skills online. Uh, is that something that you're still experimenting with? Yeah, Limina was at one time an in-person annual gathering um, over ancestral skills where people were teaching skills and it was about to happen in April of 2020 and we as a little crew who were organizing it decided to offer each workshop ad hoc on the internet over the course of the spring and summer. So it was about five months of workshops being on the internet and they're all on a sliding scale basis that start at zero and go up to about 60. And they are meant for folks to just come on for whatever interests them. So if it's 
high 10 and great. There's also bird language. There is also basket making and nettle cordage is happening in September when the nettles are ready. <laughs> yeah. um, it was wild in the beginning because I had never done online work and it felt so antithetical to my practice because I want to bring people together in community in that moment when we tan hides. That's what really just feels so important. But when I taught the workshop on hide tanning, it felt really connected to people. And so I feel like in this COVID reality that we live in, it's still going to be okay. We're still going to be able to feel connected with each other. Are we going to be able to um, tan sheep hides online? Like, would, is that mm. like, okay, everybody go to your butcher and ask them up the chain? Or, or is it like, find your local sheep farm and then salt your hide until we do something online? I'm asking for a friend here. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I am planning on the next, steps after summer ends when people feel like being on their computers again I'll be offering a monthly series on each of the overarching natural high tanning methods so smoke tanning mineral tanning and bark tanning and in the winter I will be continuing the high tanning immersion program which I started last year and you were in the cohort Carmen and yeah. it was amazing so what I am planning to do is help lead folks through their own home high tanning projects by literally mailing out the equipment and tools that you need and then being around to help everyone with their projects. Just, yeah. Sweet. Are you going to maybe give us also instructions, like um, build instructions for our um, stations, you know, you have like your PVC pipe and your two by fours that you put the hide on and then you're leaning on. I was like, oh, I need to make that so that I could have a comfortable way because I tried to like think of other ways I could rig that up. For people who don't know about high tanning, they don't know what I'm saying right now. But if you know anything about <laughs> high tanning, you're like, yeah, how would I need some diagrams for how I could make my own fleshing station? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a part of it too. Oh. I think. <laughs> I didn't think initially that I was going to be able to continue this work during COVID. And I thought, you know what, I can just go do some manual labor work somewhere else. But I am more and more feeling inspired and actually like somewhat of a sense of urgency to keep on with this work because I have seen how just utterly disconnected people have felt from natural systems in COVID. And there's also a huge lull I think we are in collectively right now where we had an immense eruption of grief and rage after the murder of George Floyd, but also the murder of so many people in the springtime, so many BIPOC folks by both like police and by white vigilantes. And we're kind of coming down collectively from a really immense uproar. And it's like in this space where I think we need to practice a ton of community care and that's the lens that I have always put on to high tanning because for me it has been just the most healing act that I can possibly do and so to bring it to other folks that's kind of like where I get to practice my healing work in the world it's through this medium of high tanning yeah and I think folks who have who are just sort of 
becoming aware of waking up to like high tanning, that's a thing. What, mm-hmm. what they don't realize is how meditative it is. It is so meditative, the repetition, the quiet, if you like, you know, the, the, the um, somatic experience of like working stuff through your big muscles. It, it's a really wonderful thing that the sensory experience of texture and, and attuning to mm-hmm. changes in the texture of the hide. It's very, very meditative. So last time I asked you about grief and rage. So for the last question today, how are you harnessing vitality and joy? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> I am remembering to just go outside without a purpose. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're just like, just that. You're like, and that in itself is the entire practice. Yeah. 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 What, when you go outside, is there a particular aspect? Are you very solar oriented or is, is it like trees or sky mm. or grass? What, what, what gives you the most vitality? You know, right now, because it is like 32 degrees out, I'm definitely seeking trees and I'm like walking (laughs) under the shade and I'm loving it. Um, I also am currently the steward of this incredible passion flower vine that blooms sometimes, but I don't know when it's going to bloom and when it's not. So I often, I'll just like tell myself, I got to go check on the passiflora and go sit beside it and hope that it blooms, which gives me immense joy. I love that. I go out and visit my pumpkins every day. Just be like, wow, look how much you've grown overnight. Yeah, I really resonate with that. Well, and with so many things you bring, Mara, thank you so much for, um, yeah, expanding on some of the themes from the last show, um, particularly around uh, yeah, how we're going to hold the healing and especially those of us who carry a lot of power and rank and privilege. Um, what does redress look like? And I really appreciate the example you, you provide in your work and how you live. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much. So if anything in this conversation uh, got you really geeked up today, I think you're really going to enjoy the show notes because we'll have lots of links. Um, Everything I'm about to share with you now, you can find at numinouspodcast.com. So the first resource we want to share is one that Mara recommends to learn more about white saviorism, which, you know, could be a slippery slope going from reconciliation to redress, you know, without the right context and quite a lot of um, analysis. I think white people, settlers could be acting from a guilty place and actually perpetuate more harm with white saviorism. So you can learn all about that at No White Saviors, which, as I said, you'll find a link to on NuminousPodcast.com or just Google it. I'd also like to lift up Bruce Alexander's essay, uh, The Roots of Addiction in Free Market Society. Uh, I will post the PDF for that. It's a formative document uh, for me in terms of my collapse awareness um, and an attachment awareness too. It relates directly to what Mara was saying about the first 250 years of the fur trade um, in what's now known as Canada. And it uses the experience of the Orcadians. So those are Scottish folks from the Orkney Islands um, who had you know, they, they were chosen by the Hudson's Bay Company um, to come and, uh, you know, be part of the fur trade, chosen because they were renowned for their um, work ethic and their sobriety. And 
Bruce Alexander uses them as a case study in how cultural dislocation and attachment rupture were direct causes of alcoholism and addiction. Um, so it's just one aspect of the essay. It's really fantastic. I'll link to that. If you really want to geek out on that particular historical niche, uh, you could also try to find uh, the book by my other teacher, Michael Newton. It's very rare, so um, maybe ask at a library or look on eBay. But it's called We're Indians Sure Enough, The Legacy of Scottish Highlanders in the United States. Now, that's kind of a surprising title, but it comes from a, a Gaelic song, actually, that the Scots used to sing uh, about how after arriving in the New World and wearing what was considered strange attire, you know, with their kilts and their sporans and their daggers, and of course the chiefs with eagle feathers in their bonnets, um, and being barefoot most of the year, and of course their, their Gallic language, led them to identify much more with the indigenous communities of the New World than with the Anglo-speaking Anglo British, you know, who had displaced them from their homelands. Of course, ultimately the Gales chose whiteness for survival, uh, but it wasn't always that way. And that's a really deep, in-depth study of that. And, of course, check out Mara's online offerings at liminagathering.com for online um, workshops in ancestral skills and also her own website, crowsnestwildcraft.com. So thank you so much for listening. My listener shout-out today is to folks in the Kootenays, the lands of the Kasangha folks, um, Kasanka peoples of southeastern British Columbia. Um, I've, I've only been there once, which is sort of surprising, but absolutely gorgeous. So hello to my listeners in and around Nelson, beautiful town. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, look for me by name at Carmen Spaniola. And if you'd like to know about my offerings and opportunities to work with me in the future, take some of my courses. Uh, this fall, I'll be doing attachment for parents. Just go to my website and sign up for my newsletter at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.